I'm Al Filris, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem or poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm happily joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Gabriel Ojeda Segay, Miami Philly poet. There's a slash there, Gabe. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Miami Philly. Author of the poetry books Jazzercise is a Language about the exercise craze of the 1980s. We have to footnote that? I guess, you know, some people don't know. <laughs> and Oil and Candle, excellent collection of poems on ritual and racism, whose third book, Losing Miami, contemplates the potential sinking of Miami due to climate change and sea level rise. More fatuous footnotes. <laughs> Somehow, am I the author of this intro? And is forthcoming. Uh, the book, My, uh, Losing Miami, that is forthcoming from Civil Coping Mechanisms, and who, I'm glad to say, is and has been for some years an active citizen of the Kelly Writers House community, and by Sawako Nakayasu, transnational poet, translator, and occasional performance artist who has lived in Japan, France, China, and the U.S., whose books include The Ants, Texture Notes, Letter Machine Editions 2010, a handwritten notebook of Tatsumi Hijikata's dance notations, and Mouth Eats Color, Sagawa Chiki Translations, Anti-Translations and Originals, Rogue Factorial 2011, a multilingual work of both original and translated poetry who has also performed on Japanese television as a poetry judge, I want to hear that story, and in a reenactment of Yvonne Rainier's Grand Union Dreams, and who has done a whole lot of fascinating things. And by Donato Mancini, whose books and chapbooks include Snowline, 2015, favorite of mine, Loiter Sack, 2014, Buffet World, 2011, Fact and Value, 2011, Ethel, 2007, and Ligatures, 2005, whose published critical writing includes work on archival memory in Anamnesia. Did I get that right? Yeah. Anamnesia, Unforgetting, 2011 and a discourse analysis of poetry reviews in, and you have to read this, everybody, You Must Work Harder to Write Poetry of Excellence, 2012. <laughs> His current book, Same Diff, 2017, works at intersections of poetry, contemporary art, documentary, cinema, and social history. Donato, welcome. Thank you. So you've Glad been, to be you're here. spending some time. You're, you're mostly a, a Western Canadian person. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I've sort of split between the two, raised in Ontario and have lived lived in Vancouver for a long time. Yeah, and you have brought to us the Kootenai School of Writing recordings mm-hmm. that are on Penn Sound. Thank you for doing that. You're, you're absolutely welcome. Fantastic. And by the time people are going to hear this episode on your Penn Sound page, I imagine we'll have some, some pieces recorded from Same Diff. Yes. Fantastic. Gabe, always good to see you. Hi, Al. Good to see How you. How far did you come for this? Um, from upstairs, so which about is... about 90 feet. Yeah, it was good. I was just um, doing my job. <laughs> Tell us about the back stairs at the writer's house, because that's the way you came. Yeah, they're really low because they were established in a time when people were just shorter or less um, 
less important. About their space. <laughs> less important. This yeah. pro- these were I probably actually, servant stairs. Right? I actually like grab the roof with my hands as a way of guaranteeing that I won't hit right. my head. So I descend like yes. totally touching all the walls. Yes. So it's and the roof. So the, the ceiling of that stairs has two things: streaks of you know oil and candle, <laughs> and and also like chips out of it from all the heads, the famous literary heads that, that have bumped. hit it. <laughs> Sawako. Hi. Hi. This is your first time at the writer's house. It is. It's good to be here. You walk through and it seems kind of cozy. Yeah, everyone was eating meatballs. <laughs> we were eating meatballs before lunch. <laughs> so glad you're here. And your pens on page, which is glorious, will be added to again by the time people hear this because you're going to be doing a reading uh-huh. this evening on the day of this recording. Well, we're here together to talk about two poems by Suyan Juliet Lee from her book, That Gorgeous Feeling, published by Coconut Books of Athens, Georgia in 2008. Our two poems appear in a section of that book called Perfect Villagers, which had been separately published as a chapbook in 2006. And the two poems we'll consider today uh, from among these perfect villagers, I think of the poems as perfect villagers, and maybe the people who are subject of odes possibly are the perfect villagers that we we can talk about that and those two poems are dear margaret cho one of two letterish things written to margaret cho in this section dear margaret cho and daniel day kim our recording comes from a reading juliet gave here at the kelly writers house back in january 2007 and i was honored to be in the audience that night so here now is suyan juliet lee performing dear margaret cho and daniel day kim Dear Margaret Cho, Korea might be gay, but I do not think you are. Korea is a peninsula. You and I are people, meaning that we have hair we comb and things to look at. Our lips pout and take on the fullness of an adopted meaning. The fact of the matter is that relentlessness is a handshake, a limp fish or glass of lukewarm tea. The fact of the matter is that standing on a stage, everything is comic, meaning small and memorable, of the insubstantial universe, a minor disaster or floating cord. The darkness is outside when I see you, not in. I laugh when the funny thing gets said, and mostly I laugh inside. On the inside is without curves and artificial spaces, many of them not gay or Korea, but when I see you, they all run, and speech is maybe stammer, sometimes slur. Margaret Cho, your tongue might wreak more more havoc than it speaks, outside being from the vantage point of escalating stairs, from dark glasses and escapades. The vantage being from a great height, a lighter space on the inside that was formerly before the dark and laugh. We really wait for the funny things before they are said and let go forever after. Margaret, there are many funny sisters and there are many porn stores. I too think Uleok is really petrified of its own fish, that there are babies and there are dykes, that this little piggy has something, that a pubic mound transforms into a public space, not being gay or without standing curves, prayerful and abashed, facing the tide grown over, rediscovered in the woods by strangers and haunted for years and years. Daniel Dakim. A perfect symmetry of both parts, animal, feline and quizzical and man, made undone, sworn in, stormed again. Electric, transmitted from the foreground into appropriate weather, the skin being elastic cause for several considerations, contrite, argued over. 
Aren't we of beautiful tangents, beautiful oxblood, black sand, mourning from small wire filigree, a gesture? Gabe, I spent the last couple of days wa- watching and rewatching Margaret Cho via YouTube. <laughs> and when I then reread the Dear Margaret Cho piece, and Juliet talks about the fullness of an adopted meaning, it, it really struck me as just such a perfect commentary on Margaret Cho stuff. Okay, so I, with that lead in, what do, you, what do you think of the fullness of an adopted meaning? What does it mean? What does it signify, and what, what might it have to do with Margaret Cho? You know, I when I read that first time, I thought, like, we've got this statement right before it, which is, um, you and I are people. And it's this almost, like, very obvious thing. Like, we're people, and the, th- the thing that makes us people is that we have hair that we comb and things to look at. And so when I started thinking in that mode of, like, what are the very obvious things of being a person, um, the lips pouting and taking on the fullness of an adopted meaning felt like it was about the way our bodies are acting or moving, but they have meaning outside of our personness that other people will take on. So when I pout, it has this meaning that's not really from me, but it's given to me by just social interactions. I don't know what that has to do with Margaret Cho. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you dodged the question, but you also didn't. I mean, it was what you said was great. So, Akko, you want to take it from here? Yeah, I was thinking about the lips pouting, too. Um, but part of my reading was about um, lips and mouths. And uh, normally we think about our mouth having many functions. But um, here, the lips pout and take on the fullness. So it's receiving instead of... Um, projecting or speaking into the world. It's taking on the fullness of an adopted meaning. So this meaning is not one's own or is being adopted from somewhere. I think there's also a little bit of um, maybe a reference to Korean adoptions, um, which kind of peaked in the 80s um, in terms of Koreans being adopted into American families. And maybe that was in the air. So couple things. Yeah. Donato, your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, um, I mean, the way that our lips pout is actually formulated suggests that it's passive. So it's not necessarily, it's as if the um, the lips being described, you know, just seem to indicate a pout um, in spite of whatever the, the person bearing the lips might actually be feeling, right? And so then the adult, for me, there's this interesting slip with the word adopted, um, that might have been the word projected in a certain way. Right? And you mentioned projections. So it seems like the reading of that is like indicating like expressively like sadness is something that is possibly projected onto the person who's bearing these lips, right? And, and then the bigger meaning is just, you know, how our bodies read to other people is like is somewhat beyond our control, you know? Yeah. I mean, let me throw out a complete amateurish comment on Margaret Cho because I'm not the person that people drive across states to meet and talk about Margaret Cho with. <laughs> you are now. Yeah, that was a weird locution for this. But what I learned from re-watching, I had seen the television show in the 90s, but then, you know, had sort of not followed the stand-up routine. Was very, the stand-up stuff, especially in recent years, is very radical. And what she keeps talking about is, um, so I am this body that you see and you make all kinds of judgments, particularly because I'm going to push a... Uh, satire of what you think Koreanness is on you, but actually the only thing that makes me 
makes that material relevant is the stuff that passes through my mouth. Uh, and she does these extraordinary imitations of her mother and her grandmother, San Francisco Korean Americans. Uh, and that's sort of famous in the early in the early standups. So when I read Fullness of the Adopted Meeting, I kept feeling that the the barrier for Margaret Cho having access to this self that people come to see and try to understand is is what is said. And then later, Margaret Cho, your tongue might wreak more havoc than it speaks. Mm -hmm. I turned to you guys to figure that out. But it strikes me as Juliet is not criticizing her. She's saying something about identity there and speech. Sawako? Yeah, well, that brings me back to the very beginning of the poem, which says, Korea might be gay, which is a pretty wild statement. <laughs> yeah, we should explore that. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's followed by, but I do not think you are. So she's challenging um, certain statements about Korea or gayness or um, the way those things intersect in Margaret Cho, um, which is fascinating. Um, and having placed that already, it it opens up kind of an opening of identity markers. And then it brings me to the lips pouting and full lips, which are associated with um, sexiness and also often um, derogatorily connected to black people too. And I think that those things are sort of being placed into that first stanza. The darkness is outside when yeah. I see you, not in. So, so I mean, Margaret Cho is always talking about, you know, inner and outer mm -hmm. racialized identity. And the mouth as this um, gate where right. things come in and out. It seems like the main binary we're working on is this sort of like inside, outside, or maybe public versus, I don't know if private's the right word for it, but public versus inside of oneself. Like there's this contrast between what is Margaret Cho saying to the audience, what's being given to the audience, what is the audience seeing, and maybe what's happening inside of Margaret Cho, and how does that look in difference or similarity to um, to Juliet Lee. Um, and one thing that that might matter for in the line you point out of your tongue might wreak more habit than it speaks. Speaking would be the outward performance of the tongue, I guess. That's what the tongue can deliver on to other people. Maybe the tongue is wreaking more havoc in in Margaret Cho, like in her mouth, um, whereas the speaking is what the audience gets. That's why the comedy scene of being on stage, making other people laugh is so important here because that's what it's speaking. But maybe there's more havoc somehow in the mouth without the audience's attention. Donato, your thoughts about this? Yeah, and the, I mean, the previous line brought us really powerfully to the mouth. The fact of the mouth, as you might say, in the speech is maybe a stammer and sometimes a slur, which, um, you know, there's a certain way in which the poem in this passage just before that is like, is almost drifting. Like there's these suggestions of sort of like drifting through the darkness and kind of being in space with the floating cord and everything. And then it when it, the way it comes down to the mouth in that, moment um, about speech maybe stammering is so incredibly material and real that it also like really um, activates the kind of the meaning and the feeling of the tongue at that moment for me. Um, and that sense of the mouth, yeah, as a barrier between the inside and the outside is like, is actually really strong. Um, I think the stammering and the slurring here are important. And I wonder if we read them as, um, you know, is, is Juliet Lee like stammering and slurring because she's ecstatic 
or is this like a is is speech being somehow compromised is speech being kind of is speech itself being wounded here if we were to try to understand this unlike daniel day kim which seems to be a, a poem about someone a, a perfect villager a korean american actor this one is addressed to her this is a letter what's the difference what's the address here what what is Juliet saying to Margaret, what yeah. would you say? Well, I think that is the interesting question. And there are, um, there's sort of a facade of fan letter. There's kind of an affection and there's a connection. You and I are people. So there's a, a kinship being felt. But what I notice is that um, Margaret Cho kind of takes space as a very non-model minority. You know, she's she kind of defies a lot of stereotypes cast upon Asian American women. And she creates this persona that's very, um, that's kind of like a caricature and it's very aggressive and confrontational and um, um, raucous. And, and so I think what this poem is doing is, well, let's complicate that and look at her as, as an individual person um, in social space. So when I go back to that line we were just talking about, but when I see you, they all run and speeches maybe stammer, sometimes slur. So that they, and I find the pronouns in this poem really interesting. Um, the Those moments when it's like, I see you, that's really direct and intimate and visibility is so much an issue among minorities. So I see you. The darkness is outside when I see you, not in. And then that's repeated um, in that speech and stammer slur line. But when I see you, they all run and speech is maybe stammer. So in a way, she's saying, I see you. At the same time that she's thus, I'm going to complicate this narrative. So, Gabe, what, following that, what do you make of these categories that we don't think of as um, of the same type? Uh, there is gay and there's Korea. Mm -hmm. what, what's being said by those they're, they're It's humorous in that they're non-symmetric. Yeah. Well, bef right before I get to that first line, I just, like, I think what's important here is the scene of, like, as you're saying, um, seeing Juliet Lee looking at, Margaret Cho, maybe maybe even she's at a show, and we can imagine like the show is being described, like the darkness outside, like almost the darkness on the audience, the light on Margaret Cho, um, and it's this scene in which um, she's looking at her. But when I feel like when minorities are are seeing representations, it's supposed to be like, oh, that person is like you, um, like like for me, like um, the I remember as a kid, like understanding that probably the only person who had a similar ethnic background to me on TV was um, Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> and that's like... Seriously? But he's that was, a little I before mean, that, your time. Well, yeah, no, it's true. I used to watch, I always watch TV land um, okay, TV. <laughs> as a kid. And I would see Ricky Ricardo and I had all these thoughts about like, am I supposed to be like him um, if we're the same in one way or another? And why am I different or how am I similar or whatever? And I feel like that's the, you know, the question that gets us here and the question that gets us to Daniel Day Kim too. Like, why am I a Korean American similar to this Korean American who's on TV, who's being displayed or who displays themselves? And the funny thing about that first line is that it, inverts some of our expectations about these, like, identity categories because Margaret Cho is bisexual and 
she's being described as like not gay, but Korea might be. A, a thing that could not be gay is being described. I, Korea might be, but I definitely but I don't think you are. So it's this way in which um, actually she's just playing with this identity category. And I actually cannot say that I know why or what it does, but it it confuses us right at the start of this poem about seeing Margaret Cho to say, I think Korea is gay, but I don't think you are, even though that's something Margaret Cho talks about. No, I think it's really important that she's saying things that are not true right, or that right. can't be true because that's kind of the, the large problem we all inhabit is this desire to identify and to be true or correct or authentic or real, what, what have you. Yeah. I mean, as we turn to Donato on this topic, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. I'll just put a kind of silly footnote in, which is a, a, a much-watched Margaret Cho riff is where she calls out John Travolta as gay. Mm-hmm. And she insists rather strongly, okay, well, I don't know if that's true or not, but the feeling you get when you're listening is that it's not true and that the whole comedy routine is about just picking some person who is, in this case, very macho uh, and and saying something wrong. It strikes me that Margaret Cho is receiving that kind of thing, treatment here, uh, we know she's gay, of course, bisexual, anyway, and she is being told here that she's probably not. No, though, I, I, <laughs> I do, do not, not think you are. Yeah. I do don't not, know. I what think, do you think? I, well, I find, see, I find the, yeah, the first line, as we mentioned, um, is actually one of the most incredibly important lines in the poem. Like, it, it sets it on this funny footing. I find the first line really oddly sad because there's so much in Margaret Cho's routines about her sexuality. And for her to be confronted about it at the beginning of the poem shows... Like it immediately marks a distance for for um for Juliet from Margaret Cho. Um and then it's tracked partly as you mentioned, so it go through the through the pronouns and one there's this constant shift through the poem of who the we is, like who the we in question is. Like there's a sense sometimes when uh, the narrator and Margaret Cho are being almost directly compared. Like she really means you and I, Margaret. Sometimes she seems to mean us Koreans. Sometimes it's a very, very big, like human we, like all of humanity. Um, and then I think there's the line, we really wait for the funny things before they are said and let go forever after. That's a point where I feel like the we becomes really different. I think I, think I want to come back to the final stanza slash paragraph of the Dear Margaret Cho piece at the end, but let's turn to Daniel Day Kim. So here's the first question. Uh, in what way is Daniel Day Kim a perfect villager? I mean, this is the chapbook. I mean, I think I know he was like the voted the sexiest man alive yeah. in 2004 or something. And I've seen some pictures of that period. <laughs> so I think maybe what did he's, you think, a, Al? he's the perfect villager. <laughs> but what does perfect villager mean, and what do we do with Daniel Day Kim as as an exemplar? He's a funny cultural figure because he was really big at a certain moment, but when he was on Lost, when he was on Lost, yeah, and and that's sort of when he was also the sexiest man alive. And he's a funny cultural figure because he was really big for this moment, and then kind of dissipated out like I don't think he's really in the cultural consciousness right now actually he is really, um, really mm-hmm. recently he and his co-star Grace Park on Hawaii Five-0 they they had a contract negotiation with CBS and they were asking for parody with the white right uh, right I remember the story actors on, on the, the show, show of the all show. things Hawaii Five-0 yes. the white actors yeah okay. yeah and, and plays uh, part Chin Ho Kelly Mm-hmm. I love the Kelly part. <laughs> it was pretty huge, though, for them to walk away from their jobs like that. It kind of 
made big news. And yeah. um, so, so, we have a date so on, Gabe, is on it, this chapbook? Yeah, 2006. 2006. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it would be written in the Lost Before context. Hawaii. Five, oh, yeah. But this is in the middle of Lost. He was big. Yeah, yeah. so he's a big figure. And the, the word and the perfect sexiest man alive is just probably at the time she was writing this. So he's oh, yeah. major. Yeah. Well, yeah. the other thing to recognize, too, is that Asian men are just not seen as sexy in our media, in our culture. So it was such a big thing just for that. And, and the sexiest man alive wasn't the sexiest Korean American alive. It was the yeah, sexiest yeah. man right, alive. Right, it was People Magazine. People Magazine. Yeah. And I, did, I hadn't even realized how, how rare that was until Jeremy Lin happened and we had Lin Sanity and he mm-hmm. was on the NBA. <laughs> so he was so masculine, so powerful, so sexy, attractive in all these ways that I find myself remembering Jeremy Lin in reading this Daniel Day Kim Oh, that's poem. so interesting. And also sad to belong to a category, a demographic in a land that doesn't find you attractive. Just to follow that for a second, that feeling, I second that emotion in the sense that the most beautiful poetry in this book, I think, is at the end of this poem, the stanza, three-line stanza that starts, aren't we of beautiful tangents? Yeah. That is exactly what you're talking about. Wow, wow, wow. Donato? Yeah, that's a really striking moment in the poem, too, like in the beautiful oxblood. It seems like the most dialogical moment in the poem. Like it's a like I, I like this poem quite a bit. It's like these in, these screens, you know, each is kind of translucent and, and slowly a picture emerges. You're not entirely sure of what. And then the, the, the oxblood and black sand moment, like both pushes you out and draws you in in this really particular way because it seems to refer to specific cultural things that you may or may not have access to. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an explosive moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. and the symmetry too. Um, I realized that, Al, you mentioned um, in the Margaret Cho poem, uh, Korea might be gay, but I do not think you are. And you mentioned it being non-symmetrical. And yeah. then... Um, and this, there's the perfect symmetry. Yeah. <laughs> and It's the symmetry of... Um, of parts, which are character parts and body parts, animal, feline, quizzical, man, comma, made. So it's really, you know, Margaret Cho's issues being played out right there on the, you know, in the visage of the sexiest man alive. And And kind of, yeah, and sort of undoing. So he, he sort of rises to fame as the sexiest man alive, which is kind of a limited way to view somebody. And so then it com- it comes apart so beautifully in both parts, animal, feline, quizzical, and man. So both, and yet there's more. And it's just opening up um, how we can view people, how we can view Daniel Day Kim in this really beautiful way. I do agree with you that the last three lines are just so gorgeous. And there's they this are, this yeah. transit from perfectness and perfect symmetry to mourning, right? And oh, to, the totally. oxplugged and the totally. black sand seem to be associated and Sacrifice made with some kind. I would say more with healing. Um, and the mourning suggests that too. Um, I think oxblood is something eaten in Korea, oh, but yeah. also in other in other in other cultures too, as like an incredibly nourishing soup. And looking up the black sand, there's a beach on Jeju Island where people go for healing and they bury themselves in this black volcanic sand. So how does that relate to the beginning, the perfect symmetry, the strength, the sexiest man, and it ends with like this brokenness that's, you know, that's in need of of healing. That islandishness may have been suggested semi-subliminally by his appearance on Lost. I'm going to ask Zach to play the last 
three lines of that poem, and then let's talk about it in, in close detail, starting with Gabe. Aren't we of beautiful tangents, beautiful oxblood, black sand, mourning from small wire filigree, a gesture? Okay, let's do a close reading. Yeah, I want to talk about tangents just since we've already gotten there. But I think we need to say how we get to tangents, how we get to the third stanza. Because the first two stanzas of this are so bodily. They're so about the skin. They're so about the way Daniel Day Kim looks or is made. Um, and we're asking, what? why are these people perfect villagers? And we've got the word right there, perfect, in the first line. It's so fleshy. And then at the end, it becomes very abstract. Um, it goes into the word tangent. And I think, like, since we were talking about beauty and attractiveness and sexiness, um, I think the word tangents is this moment where maybe Lee is saying, um, aren't we beautiful for a different reason? Like, aren't we beautiful for a non-fleshy reason? And this abstraction of beauty, I think, is really useful for thinking about when Daniel Day Kim becomes the sexiest man alive. It's like, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And it's a thing that causes discussion. And it can be hard to see a person of your race sort of touted in this way, but it can also be refreshing. And that kind of complicated feelings, I think, Lee is not delving into, but is saying, actually, aren't we beautiful in another way? Um, aren't we in a tangent, since you said getting away, Donato? Like, I think, aren't we beautiful? Aren't we of beautiful tangents, something other than that fleshiness? So let's go back to the very end of the Margaret Cho piece and see if somehow we can magically uh, tie things together a little bit. I'm interested particularly in the passage of that last stanza paragraph that starts that there are babies and there are dykes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that this little piggy has something, that Mm -hmm. a pubic mound transforms into a public space. That's crucial. We should work on that. Not being gay or with outstanding curves, prayerful and abashed, facing the tide, grown over, rediscovered in the woods by strangers and haunted for years and years. Now, the ending is just as strong lyrically and imaginatively as the Daniel Day Kim. It's just fantastic. You, I mean, you just envy when you read that, you think, <laughs> oh my God, why can't... Okay, so we'll go to that beautiful ending, but somebody want to deal with there are babies and there are dykes first, Gabe? I think like, well, it seems for me that it starts, the stanza starts out with going from Margaret Cho, um, like... Shticks or I forget what you call those in comedy. Bits, bits. Routine. Well, like, stick is is okay yeah, like too. like funny sisters, porn stores, Wuleok. It seems like that comes from the content of Margaret Cho's stand up, and then it moves further and further away. So that's this weird like hybrid moment where it's like there might be something about babies, lesbians, maybe there's something about a little piggy, but we get further and further away and more abstracted really quickly. Um, and the the. Like, grammar here actually really confuses me. So there are babies, there are dykes. This, that this little piggy has something. That, like, the word that here that starts a bunch of phrases and then eventually going into not being, I really, I, like, have no idea where we go at the end, which is why I like this, the end of this poem, when we end it with this, like, very big image of haunted for years and years. It's like, I have no idea where we came from or where we went to. Something has changed in... Uh, Juliet's conception of what we talked about before, Cho, Cho's work, her kind of cr- ethnic critique, 
starts at what she says, the words. Of course, Juliet Lee is a poet, so that makes sense. But now something else. There's a combination of pubic and public. It seems that there's other things now that are coming, that are going public to Nato. And um, this this little piggy has something strikes me as this little piggy went to market. I feel that both poems yeah. are about Korean-Americans on the market in a way, public figures. And then Margaret Cho in particular would take the pubic moundness and transform it into something that's public so that it's all all along not just about language. To me, like I love when the grammar, because she's got this wonderful way of making it feel like you're being led through a syntactic and grammatical sentence and you're not being. And it's taking all these funny turns. We always feel somehow gently moved along through it. And I love the way that this ends in that way. And I feel like it ends on one of these kinds of stammering, slurring runs that suggested earlier in the poem. And the public pubic thing works with the in-out distinction that's constantly going um, through the whole poem. I was just going to say, grammatically, what I'm seeing is like it, that long sentence that ends it starts with phrases on I too think. So I too think that Wu Leok is really petrified. I too think that there are babies. Um, I too think that a pubic mound transforms into a public space and everything after seems to grammatically at least modify public space. So I think we have to ask ourselves sort of what does it mean for a public space to be grown over, a public space to be rediscovered in the woods. Um, and that public space comes from a pubic mound. And I think like maybe what's happening here is that Margaret Cho's life experiences translate into an exchange with like an audience, as in I make my life into bits and jokes and things like that for you to laugh at. And a pubic mound, let's say that comes from Margaret Cho's life, transforms into a public space. We're watching her on stage. And now that public space has all these other things. It's not gay. It has outstanding curves. It is prayerful. It is grown over. It is rediscovered. And that abstraction is still complicated to me. But I think we're going from where does the comedy come from to how is it expressed? I think that's that's also like tracking the movement in that paragraph of like their money, funny sisters and porn stars, which come from her comedy routines to a mound haunted for years and years. Mm-hmm. Suwako? I'm just still thinking about how beautifully you put that in terms of the grammatical um, motion. Um, because if you uh, – forgive me if I changed the topic a little bit, but I'm I, you got me thinking about the grammar and the syntax and um, that there's something about the way the syntax carries meaning um, and sort of – is loaded. So I, I'm going back earlier in the poem when it says, and this comes up several times, I laugh when the funny thing gets said and um, the funny things c- kind of repeats itself. And so there's sort of a, there's sort of an inside jokeness feeling to it, but also that um, there's, there's this big arrow pointing to uh, this thing that's not spoken as if it's some like ghost in the woods that has been there for a long time and it gets rediscovered over and over again and um, you're rediscovered in the woods by strangers I'm interested in that stranger aspect of it because there's a there's sort of a the sense of who who is everybody in relation to each yeah. other um, Juliet Lee and Margaret Cho and Daniel Day Kim kind of occupying um, you know they are strangers to each other I think yeah. Um, and haunted and haunted for years and years. 
I'm wondering, like, Al, you were saying earlier that you rewatched all these comedy routines. Are you a stranger rediscovering Margaret Cho's public <laughs> mound and haunting it? Like, because it, it's years <laughs> out from when the stand-up came out. Like, I, I mean, it might be that this material is being recycled or rewatched or re imagined by random people and you're a stranger to Margaret Cho I think unless you, <laughs> unless you know her but I, I mean I, it seems like there's a a specific kind of exchange of language or experience that happens and maybe I think um, I don't think Juliet Lee sees that in such an optimistic way like I don't think that the comedy show is something that she and Juliet Lee feels amazing about because the way she describes the audience reacting to these things, it has a weird language. Like, the funny things, it really, like, makes a comedy routine sound awkward and sound, like, stilted. And then the laughing is described as, like, letting go forever after and maybe re-watching or rediscovering is described as haunting. I, and I think that... My, so getting back to my experience, you know, <laughs> uh, bin, binging on Margaret Cho... Um, the darkness is outside when I see you, not in. Margaret Cho is brilliant at talking about, you know, the, you know, this, the, the, the Martin Luther King, and I say this with, you know, great respect for his rhetoric and idea, the idea that there's this thing called the content of one's character that has nothing to do with the exterior, you know, marks and signifying that occurs in historical context. Margaret Cho's is brilliant at making us see that the darkness is outside, that one can externalize that darkness. And that seems to set up this feeling one has, and clearly Juliet Lee has with lots of identification. You know, I am, we are the same, Margaret Cho, we are the same. This is not something that I felt. Um, the experience that you have trying to see how dark the darkness really is when once in a while someone can bring it outside. So there's always this play for her, especially in the early shows, where she does this, she wears very long and loose clothing pretty much throughout her career, but there's a lot of uh, staged curvaceousness that, uh, you know, basically challenges you to think she's she's saying something about her sexuality. She's also performing a certain conventional sexuality. So this funny saying, you know, not being gay or with outstanding curves, that leads to this haunted darkness that somehow has to be buried and then rediscovered. Uh, so this is a very complicated, you add what well, my, my experience yeah, is very yeah. complicated. And, and, and clearly Juliet is thinking about it more deeply than that. She, Margaret Cho and Daniel Day Kim are both really perfect villagers in the sense that that you know Korea is a peninsula. There is a sort of there is a limitation of there is a boundary, and and the two two of them are they're populating this place where the darkness has to uh, be externalized, and poetry does that too. You know, so I I went on and on. Donato, your thoughts on any of this? Um. The question of the curvature is really interesting, and I think it's part of how these poems are organized, because we get the sense of the suggestions of both the curvature of space, the way that we're in, like, you know, you get the sense of, a, of an isolated person kind of floating through space, and both in terms of, like, the um, the darkness of the audience, but there's a section of the floating the floating cord and everything. 
uh, and the curves of Margaret Cho, who's constantly evoking and making her body signify in a particular way to do with her, the, the actual shape of her body, but also the, the coastline of Korea, I think. I think this is also the other perfect and curviness that's actually being evoked. Um, I, and I, th I do think, I mean, this has been mentioned again, too. I think that the, the, the funny thing has been mentioned quite a bit. And I think that's, that's another example of how this poem is organized. Because we move through the, the funny thing and it's, you know, the joke being said. But the funny thing is also, oh, that's funny. Like the very uncomfortable, awkward, and like essentially oppressive things that Margaret Cho is actually talking about. Um, and... I mean, Juliet's discomfort with that here is that, you know, she's, or with the, the actual things that are being said, um, talked about, um, when she says, we really wait for the funny thing before they are said and then let go forever after, I think what's being evoked partly is the, the, the sort of tragicness in commenting on, on these kinds of social conditions through comedy. You know, the laughter dies and something's been said, but perhaps the conditions persist right? And they outlast the laughter. Um, and I was wondering, I was trying to imagine like a, um, a paraphrase of the poem itself. What I came to was, you give us just what we want, but it may not be what we need, right? And this mm -hmm. is, this is mm -hmm. them thinking of the we in all of its, mm -hmm. in all of its layers mm -hmm. that are evoked in the poem. Yeah. So that's, that, that's for me, is that, that mournfulness. And then, then it's rediscovered by strangers, perhaps later listening to Margaret Cho's, um, routines on YouTube and suddenly, you know, so much time has passed, it seems like a different, like a different social moment, right? Can comedy survive? Well, I'm going to, that was so terrific. I'm going to count that as your final thought okay. <laughs> and, and to turn to the two of you for our final thoughts, something you came, Gabe Suako to say here, but didn't have a chance to yet. Gabe? Um, I just want to point out like how odd this is. It's not like rare for poetry but think about like imagine in your mind I, somebody saying I'm writing a poem about Margaret Cho or I'm writing a poem about Daniel Day Kim and it starts with a perfect symmetry of both parts animal feline and quizzical and man-made it is it's such a it's a it's surprising like how odd these are as like I'm writing a poem about a celebrity and you get something so abstracted so complicated and I remember when um, you know, when we were told, like, we're going to let's talk about these poems when we decide on these poems, I was like, these are hard. <laughs> I was like, these are strange ways of reacting to a cultural figure. Um, but that's what I kind of find so, like, lovely about them is that it's not like the poem is like, this is what I think about Margaret Cho. <laughs> it's this really weird, like, hybrid scene of seeing Margaret Cho but also um, abstracting her practice. And you're glad we chose these difficult poems. I am, yeah. But I want to know why, again, uh -huh. I mean, this is what we all love about this kind of, let's say, just say, call it experimental poetry. We love this challenge. Say why? I mean, why was, you I, were scared in a way. Like, I don't know yeah, what to I do was, with these poems. Well, you know, there's a couple reasons. Um, the first is the reason I love, like, having this as a poem is, I'm really interested in taking seriously the things in our culture that we say shouldn't be taken seriously, like um, a comedian or like an actor on a kind of pulpy TV show, like Hawaii Five-0 or something like that. These are people that we kind of say in our culture shouldn't be interpreted or analyzed or thought about at more than just kind of viewing them. And I really like taking that seriously. The reason I like that we picked hard poems is I actually feel like when I'm reading this on my own, 
I didn't have most of the thoughts that I've expressed now. But actually, like, once we start talking about it, I feel like the exchange helps really get to something that is bigger than our individual minds added up together. So, Waku, final thoughts? I think a couple of you have mentioned the sort of curves that recur and um, take up space, which led me to to sort of consider the two poems um, sort of spatially and sort of bodies in space, but also kind of an abstracted geometry of curves and tangents come up a lot. And so you have a curve of a circle and then the tangent, which is adjacent to it. Um, and that adjacency, looking at you, Gabe, and re- remembering this conversation that you and Jaya Roon Ravine had about being um, not in a culture, but adjacent to it. And so there's a little bit of parallel to that, to this idea of a tangent. And then um, it's really affirmed in Daniel Day Kim, aren't we of beautiful tangents? So the tangent is beautiful. That's what's beautiful instead of... And we are of them, constituted yeah, of them, yeah. made of them. Yeah, and aren't we? Like it's still yeah. you know, a question in the air. It's not really... Mm-hmm. Um, Dear Margaret Cho has a lot of declaratives, but in Daniel Day Kim, it's aren't we? It's sort of kind of more open for hopeful, question. Hopeful, maybe. Yeah. Like, aren't we? Yeah. Like, I hope we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's asking for that affirmation. Thank you. For my final word, I just want to do bibliography, bibliographical work, which is to state for the record what some of the other perfect villagers are. Mm. And also, I'm not sure we would have found them any easier. <laughs> um, one is uh, Kim Jong-il, colon, a reader. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, you get the Kim Jong-il reader. The other is a Japanese actor, famous one, Toshiro Mufune, the, arguably the most famous, certainly in the 50s and 60s, most famous Japanese actor, not Korean, and that's also a complicated one. Two lines from that toward the end of that poem. The tongue breaks away from dictionary to country to signal to key. Just really great. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for all of us, if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And I'm looking around to see who wants to. Donato? Um, I wanted to mention a book that was published last year that I'm concerned won't find enough readers, which is um, The Gorge, which is a um, selected works of Nancy Shaw, and it should be interesting to a lot of your um, listeners who are interested in the work of Lisa Robertson, because Nancy Shaw was part of the clutch of people with Katrina Strang, with um, uh, Susan Clark and Nancy Shaw, who actually worked together. And the kind of stylistics you see at work in Lisa Robertson's work came out of this crucible, these friends. Um, and Nancy's work is actually really extraordinary, I think really important. And it's only been gathered together in a kind of vol- easily accessible volume for the first time now. She passed away a number of years ago. Um, so I'd recommend looking for The Gorge, uh, edited by Katrina Strang. Fantastic. Thank you. Gabe? Um, I want to shout out a recent book by a Philly poet um, called 49 Venezuelan Novels by Sebastián Castillo, which is ostensibly a book of 49 uh, like flash fiction pieces, but I kind of think of them more as like little prose poems, especially when they get a little stranger. Um, and it's a wonderful book about Venezuelanness um, and also a kind of like uh, an immigrant slash like 
generations away kind of experience that is very interesting um, and just kind of shocking. Like, I feel like when I read that book, every piece would end in this big, like, the way that flash fiction often does where it ends very openly. Um, <laughs> so this is a book that I have appreciated recently. Fantastic. Thank you. Suwako. Um, I want to mention a book that is not new, but new to me last year. Um, it's by Dorothy Wong and called Thinking Its Presence. Um, it offers a, a reading of poetry by Asian American poets that had not occurred to me before, shamefully. But um, it just sort of opened the door to reading, especially um, the part that interested me the most was reading avant-garde Asian American poets, the two in the book that um, that are referred to are Pamela Liu and Mamie Borsenbergi. But it, I, I was sort of able to take that and take that into the world and reading all of us a little bit differently thanks to that book. Fantastic recommendation. And I, I want to... Um, to plug and puff and ballyhoo, Yay. jazzercise is a language <laughs> by Gabriel Ojeda Segay, the <laughs> aforementioned Ricky Ricardo fan. <laughs> is there a Ricky Ode in this? No, there's no. actually a Ricky Ode in a different book of mine. What's the title of your Ricky Ode? It's called Ricky Ricardo is my bedazzled mom. Actually, that's actually oh, really okay. what it's called. Yes, there was a lot of bedazzlement and glitter, if that's what you mean. <laughs> no, um, I, I wanted to say I have a poem called The Jazzercise Dance of Hope. Oh, nice. Hope oh my well. God. Yeah, all kinds uh, of convergences um, happening. Yeah. It's a concrite poem. It's called The Jazzercise oh, Dance of Hope. I know. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, it's it's as of this recording, it's pretty. It's very new. Yeah, it's still warm. Smelling. <laughs> it's not warm, Donato, but it feels new. Anyway, well, I think I think I'll just quote. A blurb from the back. This is blurb by this poet named Suwako Nakayasu. <laughs> yeah. Through the syntax and vocabulary of a dance style proselytized by one sweaty, sexy, hyper-affirmative camp leader, Judy, not you, but Judy, Judy Shepard Missit, Jazzercise's language reveals multiple and violent registers of racial and cultural interpolation. Behind the seemingly benign landscape of six white women, this is a quote from the book, six white women stepping to the left, <laughs> I, this would be Suwako, this is a very complicated framing of quotation, I, Suwako, uh, encountered strangely and briefly the little Japanese girl in me with the overwhelming aspiration to be a perfectly shaped, beautiful white lady shimmying in a leotard. Now that is a blurb. <laughs> I am really proud of that blurb. It was a, it's a great blurb. It's I actually, up. Um, and I will say that I had to take these dance breaks while I was writing the blurb. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's awesome. That's it's weird to have a triangulated um, uh, gathering paradise, but we seem to have pulled it off. Well, that's all the perfect symmetry we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writers House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much. This has been fun to my guests, Donato Mancini, Sawako Nakayasu, and Gabriel Ojeda Segei. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner. Yes, hi, Zach. And to, is Adelaide back there, too? And Adelaide, hi, Adelaide. You've been hiding behind that giant Mac. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. Uh, in our next episode, Susan Schultz will be coming all the way from Hawaii 
uh, Sally Van Doren and Huda Fakhardin, uh, a, a Lebanese-American uh, poet and scholar here at Penn, will join me to talk about Sylvia Plath's poem, The Stones. We've wow. never done Plath on Poem Talk. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. Poem Talk.